You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Uh, we have the privilege this morning of having uh, Ray Ortland with us, and so I'm going to introduce him briefly and then pray together and ask you to pray with me, and then he's going to come and, and preach the Word of God this morning, which is a lot of fun uh, for us. It's already been a fun weekend. Ray preached at... Um, Porterbrook, Omaha yesterday and spent some time last night with some of the couples who do premarital counseling in our church and he and Janie spent time just helping us think and learn about marriage together. Uh, Ray's the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee. That's his current calling and vocation. Uh, he's also on the Council of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he's a regional director with Acts 29, which is the church planting network that Coram Deo is a part of. And so those are sort of the hats he wears and the roles he plays. Uh, he's a, a PhD scholar in Old Testament, taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for about a decade, and, and particularly in the book of Isaiah, uh, raised just a good and wise and thoughtful voice. Um, one of the things he wrote that we've been using is this uh, commentary on Isaiah in the Preaching the Word series. Some of these are available at the resource table if you uh, think this would be helpful in your study of Isaiah. Uh, it's been really great for our pastoral team as we've studied this book and just um, benefited from Ray's insights into the text, but, but here's what I love about this commentary is that, that Ray writes as a scholar and a pastor, and so he has great insight into the text, but he also writes in a way that's designed to bring us into the text and bring God to us through the text as we understand it more deeply, and that's, that's really why I'm excited um, to have Ray and his wife Janie here with us this morning. Um, we, we desire to, to meet God in the text of Scripture, right? We desire to hear the Word of God to us. And this morning, Ray then has a chance to preach the Word of God to us. And, and here's what I want to ask God to do as we pray together. Um, I, I'm concerned for us that, that sometimes when we have an outside speaker, an outside voice, a pastor who's coming in to serve us, there's this tendency to, um, to sort of be spectators, right? To, to sort of sit back and, and say, hmm, what's this person going to say? What are they going to do? And rather than seeing this as someone shepherding us and pastoring us, we see this more as someone speaking to us or, or giving a lecture. And so I want to ask uh, God to, to give us the right disposition this morning that we would really let Ray shepherd us and pastor us as we launch into this um, rich book that we began last week. Um, there's a, a funny story of sort of how uh, we landed in this Isaiah sermon series uh, Ray and I were together in an Acts 29 event about a year ago, and we were in the lobby of the hotel, and he was reading his Bible, and I was reading my Bible, and, and I, I said, hey, Ray, I know you have some background in the book of Isaiah. I, I'm thinking about preaching this book in our church, but it seems overwhelming to me. It's long and big and complex, and do you, do you think that would be wise? And he sort of leaned over his chair, and he said, your church needs this book. And I, I said, okay, I, I take that both as, as wise counsel and even as maybe the Spirit of God speaking to us. And so um, we've then, as a result of that, prayed through this over the past year and, and excited to dive into the book of Isaiah together. So Ray, thanks for uh, your help in that. Let me pray. Would you join me and let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll ask Ray to come and preach. So, Father, we join our hearts together as your people, and we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. We acknowledge that um, our hearts are prone to 
disbelieve. Uh, we're, we're prone to listen to all the other voices around us. Even as we talked about last week, we're, we're prone to not see reality correctly. And so we need the correcting grace of your word and the influence and presence of your spirit. And most of all, we need to be connected to the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. So that's what we long for this morning, and I pray that you would give us the disposition of heart, Father, to, to receive Ray as a fellow pastor, not, not as some guest speaker who's coming to wow us, but as a pastor who's coming to shepherd us into green pastures and, and into the still waters of your presence and your word. And so would you quickly this morning, uh, by your spirit, um, initiate that sort of conversation between you and us with Ray as the spokesperson and the mouthpiece. Would you give us attentive hearts and joyful hearts? And Father, we want to pray for the other churches in our city this morning. Uh, we pray for those who are preaching the word faithfully, that you would prosper them and bring renewal and, and use your word to bring growth and change and a greater love for Christ. We pray even for those churches that are not faithful to your word, that you would bring repentance and revival and awakening and renewal by your spirit. We pray for our friends at Acts 2 Church out in Gretna who had a fire this week and their building was damaged and so this morning they're meeting in a different space and trying to figure out what to do. We pray that you would give grace to the leaders there and grace to that church this morning, that this would be a unifying thing for them and a, and a sanctifying affliction as they uh, process what you want to do in them and, and how they then should recover from this and move forward in the work that you've called them to. And so for all the churches in our city, we ask your grace. We ask for, for Ray and Janie's church, Emmanuel Church in Nashville, that, that you would grace them this morning, that as their pastor is here with us, that, that you would be gracing them through the leaders there and through the work you want to do there this morning. And so God, would you set our hearts aside this morning and would you, would you create a holy moment here for us to hear your word and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a privilege to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Um, you have one of these. It's a chart of the whole book of Isaiah. Um, sometimes Martin Luther said that the Old Testament prophets wrote as if they were drunk, sort of meandering, apparently, from one subject to the next. You never know where they're going. Uh, it, it, it might look like a collage of one fortune cookie thought after another. Uh, but in fact, they were very astute uh, in how they wrote. They were writing with, at that time in their culture, clearly understandable literary conventions, and people were easily able to track with them. But we've lost some of those understandings. So and this is an attempt to represent visually that Isaiah has a coherent, meaningful flow. That he's going from one point to the next toward a, a very clear and wonderful conclusion. So what I'd like to do is um, read chapter 55, explain how this book flows forward, and then look at one, briefly, look at one representative verse from each of the three major sections of the book. How's that sound? Is that okay? All right, so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 55.
I read uh, recently a story about uh, Arturo Toscanini, who was the great Italian orchestral conductor. I believe he died in the 1950s. He was the director of the CBS Orchestra. And actually, though he was involved in classical music, became a household name in America during the 1940s and 50s because of his presence on the radio and so forth. And he led his orchestra one time in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He, they played it brilliantly, and at the end of the uh, performance, the audience just exploded in applause. And Toscanini turned back to the orchestra and, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. And that's how I feel. Yeah. Isaiah is everything. Chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is God's word. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there are three major sections. Chapters 1 through 39, then chapters 40 through 55, and we just read the conclusion to the second major section, and then chapters 56 through 66. 
Now, here's what you must understand. As You might want to fold this up and keep it in your Bible. And as you go through Isaiah, you know when you walk into a mall and there's a, a floor plan there with a little red dot saying, you are here. As you go through the book of Isaiah, you can just track with where you're going through it so you can see where, get orientation to the whole. Now, chapters 1 through 39 speak to Isaiah's own time. He lived in the 700s B.C. He is present, speaking to his own generation during those chapters. Um, In chapters 40 through 66, it's as if this Old Testament prophet gazes into his prophetic crystal ball, so to speak, and looks out into the future, and he can foresee what happens in the near future and in the far future. Uh, Some have said it's like looking at a mountain range from a distance and you can see the mountain range, you can see the various mountains. You can't tell from a distance which mountains are closer and which mountains are farther. They sort of blend together in the perspective of, of distance. But as you get closer, you can see how they actually space out. Well, Isaiah 40 through 66 is like that long range view of the mountains in the distance. You can't tell... For example, he starts out speaking to the near future. He starts out speaking to about 150 years after his own time. He's projected by the Holy Spirit into a future historical situation and standing there sort of looking around, speaking into the uh, Jewish exiles in Babylon in the, in the uh, 500s B.C., the 6th century B.C. And then as he goes further in those latter sections of the book, he projects his vision all the way out to the very end of time. So he's looking into the future, but at various depths of the future along the way. And it's the New Testament that helps us understand best how to track with them. The best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Right in your Bible right there. Now, here is the primary question that strikes me as I look at this, this flow. My question is, why doesn't the book end at chapter 55? Why are chapters 56 through 66 here at all? I mean, we just read chapter 55. What a killer chapter of the Bible. I mean, we all know there are famous verses here, you know, seek the Lord while he may be found and so forth. And then it ends, you know, the, the, the whole cr- of creation is going to sort of explode in applause when you show up in your glorified condition when God in His great mercy through Christ will have completed His work in you. And He will not just make you a nice person. He's going to make you amazing. And the creation will give you a standing ovation. Well, that great way to end the book, Right? But he doesn't end. He's got 11 more chapters. Huh. Why? He answers the crisis in 1 through 39 is whom are you trusting? Are you trusting in God? And most of us here today are probably walking into church thinking, well, of course I'm trusting in God. And we do in our way. But sometimes it isn't as clear and compelling and God is not as real to us as he would like to be. So the question of trust in God is the operative question in 1 through 39. Then in 40 through 66, 
pardon me, 40 through 55, God says, I'm going to remedy all of this lack of trust. I'm going to speak all this new spiritual reality into you. I'm going to come, in fact, I'm going to show you my glory. Wonderful promises. The tone of 1 through 39 is basically confrontation. The tone of 40 through 55 is basically consolation and comfort. But then we might wonder, well, who are those who are really trusting in God? Who are those who stand to inherit this promised glory that's going to come? Where is that spiritual reality in the world today? Chapters 56 through 66 answer that question. And I want to show you two verses uh, in due course from chapter 57 that give God's surprising answer. Who does stand to inherit the coming glory? Who's going to get the standing ovation from a renewed creation? So that's the book. And um, so let's turn now to a representative passage from the first major section of the book. Let's turn to chapter 31. Chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those, so we see the tone of confrontation immediately. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Well, the, the question that I ask when I look at that, at that is, what's, what's so bad about going down to Egypt for help? The crisis, this is in Isaiah's own time, the crisis of his generation was the Assyrian Empire, the Nazis of the ancient Near East, muscling their way toward Israel, pressuring Israel, crowding Israel. Everywhere they went, they were triumphant. They were bitterly cruel people. And they, they didn't feel bad about it. They gloried in cruelty. They were scary. And they were moving toward this little kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah lived with his people. And they were shaken in their boots. Now, Assyria was at the eastern end of the Fertile Crescent. So here comes Assyria over the Fertile Crescent. Their armies are pressing in. Down to the southwest, there was Egypt, another powerful nation. Why not go down there and get some military help? What is so? Why is God offended by that? It seems a sensible thing to do. The first problem is that it says Judah was not looking to the Holy One or consulting the Lord. They believed in Him in their way, but they were not looking to Him. Their real faith was in their own strategies. God just wasn't that real to them. And 
Is it not true that pervasively in our lives, there is always the question of reality with God? We do not have theoretical problems. We have real problems. We do not need a theoretical Savior. We need a real Savior. So what's the insight here? How does this help us to see God more clearly and to press in more deeply with God? Isaiah understands that some helps are simply inconsistent with who God is. And they don't end up helping us. What was the problem with going down to Egypt? That's where they came from. They came from Egypt, the house of bondage. They were throwing redemptive history into reverse gear. They were going back. Well, at least we were cared for. We were in slavery, but at least we knew what to expect. Some helps are just inconsistent with the gospel and freedom and newness of life. If you need money, for example, it isn't wrong to get a job, but it's wrong to steal. We can work and trust God at the same time, but we can't steal and trust God at the same time because stealing says to God, you don't care, you're not real, you you don't have my back. What God wants is that we would trust Him in ways that count so that he can prove himself to us in ways that count. We want reality with God. The wonderful thing is, God wants reality with us. Any so-called help that diminishes our experience of God, that factors God out, it just turns out to be uh, another form of Egyptian bondage. It's some kind of slave master. And it may help us to feel um, as though our world is more predictable, at least that, but it is not helpful. So we can think of Egypt then, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. We can think of Egypt as shorthand, it's like a biblical cipher, it's biblical shorthand for anything I think I need outside the promises of God. Any urgency I feel, any intensity and desperation I feel for something that is outside the promises of God to me in the gospel. That's why it was wrong to go down to Egypt for help. God had already promised He would help. God had declared His commitment to His people. They were going down to Egypt to get the very thing that God had promised He would give them. They were treating the love of God with contempt, treating the reality of God as theoretical. He was, he was a beautiful theory. He was a, an orthodox theory. He was a biblical theory, but He was only a theory. While their modus operandi for real life said, in effect, whatever gain I had in Christ, I count as loss for the sake of the world. I have suffered the loss of Christ and I count him as rubbish that I may gain the world. Jesus means it when he says, he looks us right in the eye. He says this to us in our lives. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus meant it when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, it just occurs to me right now, I've got a friend from India, an older gentleman who is, he has earned massive street cred in the red light district of Mumbai. They call him uncle. He's this father figure, pure of heart, who moves into that living hell, caring for people. He was in Amsterdam and went into the red light district there to care for whoever might be open. He struck up a conversation with a woman. He said, you have to be very careful just to keep your eyes right in her eyes so that she is assured that your motives are honorable. So he's looking in her eyes, caring for her, giving her the gospel. And she began to weep because she had come from a Christian home and she had gone far from God and as he was speaking to her hope and the love of God this dear woman right there said oh praise the Lord she'd been found God became real he had not left her he had not forsaken her he meant what he said. We can understand that whatever Assyria is putting pressure on us and breathing down our necks, that's not the real crisis. The real crisis is whether or not we're believing the promises of God. However horrible and difficult life may be, God has given us promises. We don't need to panic. We don't need to run down to Egypt for help. We can believe the promises of God. Our most urgent need is not to find a way to cope with stress. Our most urgent need is reality with God, moment by moment, whatever life may bring, wherever we find ourselves. Over and over again in the Bible, from one end to the other, God keeps saying, look, I just want you to trust me. Believe my promises. Look away from every reason why I shouldn't love you. Look away from every reason you've given me not to care for you. Believe the gospel that I am with you for reasons that go beyond you. Believe the gospel that I am committed to my glory in your life. I am committed to my glory in this world. Don't tell me how far my love can go. I'm telling you there's no limit to my love. So Judah's first problem is that they weren't living in that kind of reality with God. The second problem is the flip side, that they were trusting in chariots, it says, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. In other words, they were impressed with and drawn to and almost addicted to compulsively needing what they could see and what they could control here in this world. But trusting in many chariots and strong horsemen never works. It only compounds our feelings of insecurity, anxiety, and nakedness because we're always left wondering who else has more chariots and stronger horsemen. When we step outside the promises of God, all we find 
is uncertainty. It's amazing in verse 3 what it says. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Doesn't that strike you as an odd thing to say? I mean, I, I don't know that I ever would have launched the proposal, the Egyptians are God, their horses are spirit. So why is Isaiah pressing this point? Because sometimes we need to take a closer look at the obvious. Flesh, however strong, is no match for spirit, however elusive. God is spirit. The Westminster Shorter Catechism of 1648 asks the question, what is God? Here, what an amazing question. Here's the answer. God is a spirit. Now, just stop right there. There's a lot more to come. But does that let you down? Are you disappointed? God is a spirit. There is not much in a modern American culture to teach us to rejoice in and be confident in that which is spiritual in nature. We tend to be more material and visceral. But what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, a spiritual ally is a superior ally. And when God makes himself real to our hearts, we see it, and we stand tall, and we can face anything. So the richness and fullness of life come from what is spiritual, not earthly. How did Genesis 1 begin? God, who is spirit, said, material reality, appear. That's very significant. The richness and fullness of life do not come from the material creation. They come from the one who spoke it into existence, this spirit being. Money, for example, can buy a house, but it can't make a home. Money can put food on the table, but it can't put laughter and joy around the table. Money can fly you to Paris, but it can't kindle romance there. What money can do is make you attractive as a target for thieves and lawsuits. (laughs) There's no life in money or in any tangible thing. What makes for life in its richness and fullness comes from God. Therefore, a heart at God, at peace with God, is a heart filled with life. And to have God is to have all things. He's that real. Now I want you to turn over to chapter 40 and let's look at a second passage now in the consolation section of the book. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm allergic to preaching. Excuse me. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low. 
the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken now if you've read the New Testament you know that that actually happened in history in the ministry of John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus and uh, Jesus uh, pardon me John the Baptist himself said I am in John chapter 1 some uh, religious leaders came to ask him who are you and he said I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said so John the Baptist quoted Isaiah 40 he said that's who I am so Isaiah's looking forward into time now to the time of Jesus seeing John the Baptist out there preparing the way for the Lord Jesus crowds of people were going down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John here's how radical that was John did not invent baptism but it was Gentile converts to Judaism who needed to be baptized it was how they washed away the contamination of their Gentileness. But John was baptizing Jewish people too. John was telling them they needed the same cleansing as everyone else. He was telling them it was not their heritage in Abraham that qualified them for God, God's grace. It was just God's grace alone. So they needed to get right with God, Jewish people did, the same way everybody else did, all the Gentiles. So there they were. They were going by droves down to John the Baptist to be baptized, confessing their sins, getting right with God, getting free. Their consciences knew this is right. This is what I want. It was a movement of gospel renewal preparing the way for Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 foretold it. It appeared in history through John the Baptist. So we may look at ourselves and wonder... I've actually, I think, here's the scary thought about my life. I've sinned my way into a dead end. I really have nothing to look forward to. I have bungled my life. And now, for the duration, basically my life is over already. I'm 35 years old, and my life is over. And for the rest of my days, I just have to settle for something. And maybe just hope it doesn't get worse. That's the best I can expect in this life. I love the realism of the Bible, and I love its realism not only about us, but about God. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, there's two great words, but God. Yes, it's all true, except for one thing, but God. So, God who intervenes for people who've sinned their way into helplessness, that God makes those people a promise. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, He promised to come and rescue us from everything that's against us, from every accusation and all damage. God has a glorious purpose for us and for this world of His, and all He asks us to do is believe His promise. And when we believe it, dominoes start falling over in all directions. Wonderful things start happening. We look at God's future that He guarantees and we just start to rejoice. And I love the way 
uh, our Lutheran friend Gerhard Forda puts it. Pretty blunt. Here's what Forda says. We are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The gospel's answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God, the Almighty Creator and Redeemer, is saying to, to this world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. <laughs> I love that. So when we look at Isaiah chapter 40 and this amazing promise, God wants us to believe. He encourages us. He demands that we believe it because it's coming. It's, it came in Jesus. We saw it in the resurrection. This is not wishful thinking. This is a lot bigger than a little psychological uplift before you go back to work on Monday morning. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. He's talking about a whole new world. So what is this saying? See, this wonderful promise here in, in Isaiah chapter 40. Three things, basically. One, get ready. Get ready. Stop thinking of God as off at the other end of the universe with barely a thought for you and for me. God cares and God is doing something about this mess. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. And He's not coming to the centers of human power and privilege. He's coming to the wilderness. He's coming to the desert. He's coming to the people who are at their end, who are exhausted and forsaken and dying. And that's where God comes down. So the question before us is not whether God cares, but whether we are where God's care comes down. So your wilderness life is not a bad place to be. You might be closer to God now than you've ever been before. So get ready. Open up. Number two, second thing this promise is saying, the whole world is going to change. We look around at the very formidable, well-established, long-held barriers of evil and desolation and brutality and inhumanity, and we are tempted to think nothing is ever going to change around here. I wish it would, but it's not going to. Oh, but this promise is saying, I don't think that every valley shall be lifted up and so forth. That's not li meant literally, topographically. He's talking about the human landscape. He's talking about the valley people who are depressed and beaten down. They're going to be lifted up. And the mountain people who are big and formidable and well-established and successful, they're going to be humbled. And the uneven and rough people who can be a royal pain to get along with, which is most of us, uh, they're going to be beautifully smoothed out. God's going to create a new humanity from a new Adam, Jesus Nothing less than a, a renewed human race. It's going to take some upheaval to get there. Karl Barth called the gospel the great disruption. But we can stop telling ourselves nothing is ever going to change in this world because everything is going to change. Number three, this new world Christ is going to create will be filled with His glory. That is... God not holding back anymore. Full strength God present with us. Right now this world is filled with our self-glory. 
monuments to our own big dealness. That is the sin of the human race. Every other evil in the world today grows up out of our self-exaltation and demandingness. So a new world, radiant with the glory of God, will also, for that reason, finally be humane and safe and happy. And this is God's promise to us. This is His word for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He seals it. So the glory of the Lord is God not concealing Himself any longer, but coming to us and changing us forever. This is the promise of the gospel. A redeemed and renewed humanity from every nation, God present with us for all that He is in a renewed creation forever. No more cancer, no more illiteracy, no more tyranny, little children in the Middle East, not raised for hatred, but memorizing the Sermon on the Mount in their beautiful Arabic language. Women in India, not enslaved, but safe and fearless and mighty. The rivers we've polluted, running with life. The jungles we've cut down, sprouting as gardens of wild delight. And at the center of it all, the new Adam, the risen Jesus, standing among us in His glory, smiling upon us, and pouring out of Him is this exuberant, volcanic, industrial strength, resurrection humanity flowing into us. We're going to have a blast. It's going to be very human, very wonderful, very glorious. We're going to be alive, finally. Alive. Right now we're at the level of vegetables. We're going to be mighty and glorious. If you're in Christ, that's your future. And don't you let any advertisements on the internet or the television and so forth trivialize your existence. You're not a market niche. You're not a voting block. You're a child of God. All right, one more verse. Now, who stands to inherit all this wonderful... Who are the people that actually trust God? Who are going to inherit this, these glorious realities? Chapter 57. Two of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Chapter 57. This is in the third section of the book now. Verses 14 and 15. And it shall be said... And that's, that's really signaling, here is God's policy. All right? This is the way God wants it to be. It shall be said. It's like a royal decree. This is going out now. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So there it is, deep within. The best things in life do not happen from the outside in, Favorable circumstances. 
The best things in life happen from the inside out. Hearts filled and made new. So, God isn't building barriers to keep you out of all this glorious reality. He's removing the barriers. And if you accept Christ, the way to God and all that God promises is wide open. As far as God is concerned, it's open. We're the ones who create the barriers. <laughs> we stop our own progress by our unbelief. What does God do? He just keeps opening up the way. He keeps opening up the way. It's his determined policy. He, he opens the way back through every obstruction, back to his heart. He even removes the barriers of our own sins through the cross of Christ. Our sins are no reason not to run into his arms because Jesus died for sinners. So if you've been wondering how to find God, he seems theoretical, seems remote, far off. Isaiah 57, 15 is the verse you've been looking for. Look what it says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, what must that be like? I mean, you and I are stuck inside this little slot called the present moment. Our experience of reality is limited, always limited to the present. We can remember the past, we can try to foresee the future, but experience is limited. We inhabit the moment. He inhabits eternity. Who on earth is going to outwit him? Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I mean, he's in a different category. We will never figure him out. I dwell in the high and holy place in heaven above and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So where is God? Very clear. It's very, very clear. God is in two places. God is way up high. He dwells in the high and holy place where we cannot go. That's not accessible to us. And God also dwells among the lowly and the contrite down low where we can go. But God does not dwell in the mushy middle where everybody's just kind of sort of okay. God is way up high and way down low. So the way to find God is obvious. Go down low. Let's humble ourselves down low. And if we're not finding reality with God, we're not low enough yet. Just keep going lower because that down there, way down there, that's where God is. God does not value upward mobility. He values downward mobility. Not because he feels uncomfortable in the high and holy place. He belongs there. That's his home. But down low, he goes down there because those, that's where the people, he finds the people that are open to him, who are willing to be loved, willing for God to remake their lives. So would it really hurt for us to humble ourselves, to own up, to face ourselves? It's so painful. It's so humiliating. But God is down there. 
Lowliness admits, you know, where I really belong is down at the bottom. What I deserve is to be a nobody because Jesus came down and he was an egoless nobody. Remember the parable he told once about some people went to a party, a banquet, and they assumed that their place was up at the head table. So they went up there and took a seat and the host came and said, I'm really sorry guys, but I had somebody else in mind for this place. Would you please go sit at the low table? Somebody else walks in and they assume, well, I don't belong at the head table. I obviously belong down here at the low table. They take their place there. The host comes and he says, you know, I wonder, I'm so sorry. I, maybe there was a mistake. You don't belong here. You belong at the head table. Would you come take a seat of honor, please? Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's only one place where we ever find that to be true, way down low. The enemy of our own happiness is every impulse of self-exaltation. And the way to find God is just keep going lower. That's where reality with God is always found. That's where Jesus went. Let's pray. Lord, teach us your ways. I pray for a wonderful immersion of reality with God for every person here. In Jesus' name.